Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. My name is Stuart Foley. I'll be your host. And today we're talking about private credit with Bob Morgan, Managing Director and Chairman of the Investment Committee at 50 South Capital, part of Northern Trust. Bob, welcome. Thanks, Stuart. Great to be here. It's great to have you. It is widely acknowledged that insurance companies have already made the decision to invest in private credit. So the key issue today is how to invest. But before we go there, I want to ask you the same questions that we ask everybody, which is what's your hometown? What's your first job? And what's a fun fact? All right. Uh, let's see. Hometown, Huntington, West Virginia, right on the Ohio River in the western part of the state. And my first job uh, you probably get this one a lot. I'd have to say it was mowing lawns. Uh, you know, if we made some nice cash, kind of pushed the mower all over the neighborhood. And then fun fact is, I guess, somewhat linked. I'm an identical twin. And, is that uh, right? Yeah, That's he, interesting. He, he was my first business partner. We, we must have mowed <laughs> every lawn in Huntington together at some point or another. So, uh, it's a, so I'll link those two, first job and fun fact. That's interesting. So not everybody knows how 50 South Capital operates, but you are effectively an allocator, right? You approach private credit from a slightly different angle. So can you talk a little bit about how you approach private credit and how you're actually come at it as an allocator? So uh, 50 South Capital, for your listeners who, who aren't familiar with us, uh, we are a wholly owned subsidiary of Northern Trust, which is one of the world's largest custody banks. And uh, the asset management business of Northern Trust is about $1.2 trillion. So it's it's just a, a, a very large scale asset manager. It's a great platform for our business, 50 South, which is focused exclusively on investing in alternative assets. So that's what our team does. We invest in hedge funds. We invest in private equity funds. And that includes venture capital funds, buyout funds, co-invests, secondaries, and then obviously uh, private credit. We have a team that's been at 50 South for 22 years. And we have about 50 professionals and oversee just uh, over $13 billion in assets. So, and so you're right. Yeah, we, we invest in funds. And that's, you know, a lot of people say, you know, call it being an allocator. So we're probably like many of your listeners, instead of investing directly in the loans, the private credit loans, you know, that are being made, we're choosing managers to invest in those loans on our behalf. And it's not just in the private credit space, that's the same strategy we use with our hedge fund business and our uh, private equity business. So we design fund of funds that package these together or we'll, we'll structure custom accounts for larger family offices or institutional investors. And so, I have always heard that a multi-manager fund costs more. Is that true? And can you talk a little bit about the cost structure and why it's not always the case? Yeah, that is true. I think when you ask most people about fund of funds businesses, there's an added layer of fee because uh, the investor is not only paying the underlying manager fee, they're also paying the fund of funds level fee. But that's not always the case. And I think there's a lot of benefits to this fund of fund structure, you know, across alternatives and specifically private credit. And, 
And I think there's a few reasons for this. I think the first, from a cost perspective, simply is scale allows you to invest, uh, to negotiate better fee structures with, with underlying managers. So if we can you know, accumulate enough capital from investors and pool that to have a larger pool of capital to invest, it gives us greater negotiating leverage with the underlying fund manager. And in this game, I mean, in the private credit game, you know, this is a, you're, you're trying to hit singles, you know, and, and fees matter. Every little bit that you can negotiate at that fee level is impactful to the ultimate return of the investor. Aside from scale, we found a couple other things really help us in the negotiations on the fees is one, just being a strong partner. You know, it's, it's, it's like anything, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, people like to work with other people that they like, you know, and uh, being, having long relationships certainly help having, being a good partner and trying to be value added for the firms you're investing with, having deep knowledge of the space, all of that can really impact, uh, you know, how, how the negotiation goes and, and how that relationship works. The other thing I would add from a cost perspective, and, it, and this depends on the investor, but you're getting broader diversification across private credit, but you're getting it all through one vehicle. So all of the capital calls are managed more efficiently. You get one quarterly report instead of several if you're investing in a bunch of different direct managers. All of that really makes the administrative efficiency of this quite nice. And so you have lower admin fees and maybe building your own staff to manage all the separate direct investments. And then finally, something we've done is just because of the diversification we're getting in our, in our fund structure, it allows us to get some, uh, we get a capital call facility that I just mentioned that helps make the management of cash a little bit more efficient. And you can, you know, with private credit, we could talk more about this, but you can put some leverage on it, just given the safety of, of this asset class. And uh, so we can put a term loan facility on our fund that allows us, you know, to borrow cheap and lend uh, at higher rates, which gives us a nice yield enhancement. So there's a lot of pieces that come together in this, but when you package it all together, we believe it is a much more efficient way for many investors to invest at lower fees than they would actually have going direct. What about carried interest? There's a point here about the ability to eliminate carried interest. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, carry is, is an interesting thing in, as it relates to private credit. If you think about venture, I'll, I'll start this way. If you think about venture capital funds, you kind of want to pay them a carry. You, you want to pay them a part of the upside. So you want to pay them some incentive to generate a high return. You're in venture capital to generate a really high return, and you're willing to give up some of that upside to, to allow them to take the risks required to generate that return. The way we think about private credit is you're trying to invest to protect your downside. We don't want to incent a provider to take incremental risk in the credit space. So we've had this discussion with several of our managers just regarding how the incentive fees work and how the alignment of interest works out. And again, back to kind of being a scale investor, it allows you to negotiate terms that align all the motivations of the investor and then, and then the underlying fund as well. So in some cases, it may be possible to get that eliminated 
so that you're not paying that profit incentive on a pool of loans like you would in a venture capital fund, for example. So, Bob, the trying to discern best-in-class managers, there's a little bit of art and a little bit of science there, right? So can you talk a little bit about how you scrutinize your managers when you're making those those selections? Yeah, sure, sure, sir. Yeah, and, and I think you're right. Art and science, that's a good way to put it. And for us, it always starts with the art part, I guess. It's uh, it's the, uh, the qualitative issues that we're assessing first and foremost. So we want, kind of alluded to this earlier, but we want to invest with quality teams, quality people, highest integrity, highest character, you know, and we like to know a team very well. That's one of the, one of the key functions of our, of our investment teams is to get to know partners at the funds we invest with extremely well. So it all starts with quality team, consistency of the team. You know, we don't like to see a lot of turnover. We were looking at a fund just as a side note, maybe to bring this to life. It was, uh, there's been a lot of private credit funds raised in the last, you know, 10 years and several of them are new and they have brought together partners from a bunch of other firms and individually very strong, very strong track records of these individuals, but you put them together into a firm where they've never worked together before And you just don't know how they're going to react in a down market. You know, how are they going to get along professionally? How are they going to make investment decisions? Those, they sound like very soft issues, but they're very meaningful. Partnerships can be very delicate and understanding the inner workings of those is is key to the long-term, you know, investment. So that's kind of the art part. Shifting to the science part, we made a decision years ago not to invest in any private credit funds that did did not exist before the financial crisis. And that decision was based on the fact that you cannot adequately underwrite credit discipline and workout capabilities unless you've been through a stress cycle. And um, the only way to really do that is to see how a firm performed back in 2008, 2009 time period. So we look a lot at default history. We look at how firms deal with defaults, how they manage through their defaults. Another just anecdote on that one, uh, there's, I'll give you an example of two different firms. And this came out of COVID, by the way, through the COVID period, we were speaking to one firm and they were talking about how they had a borrower going to default and they had the opportunity to increase their interest rate they were charging on their loan because the, you know, the, the company was in default and needed, uh, you know, needed some relief. And so they, were, it, they took the opportunity to raise their fees. Contrast that with another lender who said, yeah, we had a borrower go into default. They were in a liquidity situation. So we asked them, we asked the private equity firm who was backing that company to put more money into the company to make our loans safer. So they didn't try to, you know, gouge them on the fees. They wanted to protect their loan through a difficult period. So two very different approaches there. Uh, We've taken the approach, and so in diligence, we would look at those kind of things, and our approach has been to take the safety first route as it comes to credit as opposed to the, uh, you know, the higher returning uh, piece of it. So we'll look at things like that. We'll look at deal structures, see if they can get covenants. We'll see if they are the lead lender in transactions. We're big fans of of the lead or co-lead lenders because they're closest to the company. They're in charge of the documentation process. They're closer to the private equity owner if it's a private equity-backed deal. We'll look at origination networks. 
just to understand how they're sourcing deals, we'll look at the relationships with private equity firms. It ends up, you know, private equity firms don't want to risk a deal on a lender they don't know well. And they also want to go through the trenches with their lenders as well, because they really know how they're going to react in difficult situations. So again, back to kind of underwriting the history and, and how they've performed in down cycles. So all of that comes into play. We do have an operational due diligence team that goes out and, you know, make sure all the systems and the are good at the underlying manager. And then we hire a private investigator to actually do background checks on individuals at the firm and at the firm just to uh, kind of validate and verify, you know, uh, all the more softer kind of the art piece we talked about to kind of confirm that as well. That's uh, that's a first for me. So that's interesting. That's pretty thorough due diligence, right? So, so you talked a little bit about the fact that there's been a number of credit shops that have opened the last 10 years different firms have different strategies. How do you determine how to fit these managers together, right? So you're you're in a similar situation to an insurance company when you're looking at different manager opportunities. How do I put these together in a way that I get a diversified portfolio that's gonna perform well over time? That's a great question. As an allocator, I guess the first thing I would start with there is we have to figure out what strategy do we want to pursue? Cause there's, there's, you know, like you say, private credit comes in all shapes and sizes. And so we want to figure out, are we investing in private credit to get income or are we investing in it to get some appreciation? You know, or we, do we want to take more risk in it? Like by investing in mezzanine debt type funds and structures, or do we want to invest in senior loans? Do we want to invest in sponsored versus non-sponsored deals? So there's all these different flavors that you have to figure out how to put together or, or where you want to go. I think another way to think about that is like, where does that allocation come from? You're making a private credit. Is it out of your fixed income portfolio? We've seen a lot of investors take it out of their private equity portfolio just because you know we do private equity backed loans. And then some investors have an opportunistic bucket they take it out of. And then how are you going to benchmark it? So all those things kind of come into play, I guess, first and foremost on, you know, what are your goals? What are your objectives? And how do you narrow this huge universe of private credit funds into something that you're very interested in, you know, that really can solve those objectives you have. But then after that, we are big believers in not over diversifying private credit. I'll come back to my venture capital analogy. You know, if you're investing in venture capital, you want to do a lot of deals. You're going to get a lot of losses, you know. You're also going to have some big home runs, but you're you're not really sure at the outset. You want to make sure as broadly diversified as possible. In private credit, the outcomes are much more narrow. You know, you're not going to get big return dispersion in the outcome of investing in, in a private credit fund like you would a venture capital fund. So we're not going to over diversify. There's no use to have three or four of the same managers doing the exact same thing. So the way we structure it is. We, we think about the different pieces we want to cover in the market and then try to package something that gets you diversification into different areas of the market. So we may have a lender that lends to companies with 15 to $20 million in EBITDA, you know, smaller businesses. Then we may package that with a lender who does 50 to $75 million in EBITDA, so a little bit bigger. We may get some geographic diversification by adding a European manager, you know, so, so we think about 
ways that all of these different funds are additive to the overall experience of the investor and add diversification, which reduces your risk, but also can enhance yield because of some of the things we talked about earlier, negotiating the fees and maybe putting a little bit of leverage on the structure. So all of that comes into play in how we think about, you know, kind of combining managers and putting together to create what we think is a really attractive risk return profile for investors. Can you talk a little bit about liquidity in private credit today? Mm -hmm. Just a lot of insurance companies have put a lot of money in private credit. Liquidity is always an issue for these guys. What can you just talk just at a high level about how liquidity has been? There's been a lot of turmoil, a lot of market volatility. What's the current situation in the liquidity of the private markets today? Yeah, that's that's another really timely question. It's and it's something we think a lot about, by, by the way, because I think with the growth of private credit, you're seeing all kinds of unique structures that are coming out. And investors, they want the illiquidity premium that private credit can generate for them, but they want it in a liquid structure. And <laughs> of it, 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 you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's it's a tough thing to manage, you know. So my I've always been a little concerned when you combine a more illiquid asset into a uh, you know a liquid structure, you may get some conflicts there and times of stress. So we are big believers on our team and generally on capturing illiquidity premiums. So we do believe in aligning a patient capital base with the underlying asset, meaning, you know, what our term, we, we would be in a term like five to six years with lockups through that term, just to make sure that the underlying managers have time to originate the loans, you know, and, and then to exit them. One thing we like about the private equity backed market for these leverage loans is that um, there's a natural exit to them. You know, private equity firms going to buy a company, they're going to sell it at some point, you know, maybe three years or maybe seven years, but there is a built-in natural exit that, that will occur. But I think this market's going to, um, it, it is, uh, liquidity is going to be tougher to come by. You're not going to get those you know, hold periods on these loans is, is going to lengthen as M&A markets dry up. But I would always be very, uh, I always try to, you know, shine a word of caution on, uh, on combining illiquid assets and more liquid structures, because sometimes it's, it works great until it doesn't. I'll put it that way. So, so you just got to be a little bit careful. So what about customization or bespoke solutions? A lot of times insurance companies have particular constraints and so forth. Are you able to come up with a strategy that has some customization? If somebody has exposure to a particular segment already, can you create custom solutions? Can you talk a little bit about your ability to craft uh, solutions for a client? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, something that's doable. And I, and uh, as a matter of fact, that's, we do that in, in some of our structures. For example, you know, we've carved out what we believe to be maybe more volatile or riskier industries from a credit perspective. So things like commodity linked industries or standalone retail or restaurants, you know, they're kind of historically deemed to be, you know, riskier industries from a lending perspective. So, you know, we can talk to our fund managers and say, hey, we, we want to carve these out. You know, we don't, we don't want these in our portfolio. You could carve things out based on, um, you know, or EBITDA limits. You know, I mentioned earlier, 
we have a small market lender and a middle market lender, let's say in your portfolio, you could go to that large, the, the middle market lender and say, hey, we don't want you doing any deals under 25 million in EBITDA. You know, you're, you're kind of preventing them from swerving out of their lanes into the other firm you've chosen into their strategy. So there's a lot of different things you can do. And managers are generally very willing, especially if you can set up these separate or customized accounts to talk about different guidelines that the investor wants. You'd mentioned earlier turns of leverage. How often are you using leverage? And when you do, how are you using it? Yeah, so we have both capital call facility, which basically just allows us to manage cash more efficiently. It's it's not a long hold period on that that facility. It's it allows us to consolidate capital calls and things like that to just make it more efficient for the investor. But then we also do use term facility on our funds. You can dial up and down leverage depending on your yield targets, depending on you know your risk tolerance for for taking on that kind of leverage. I do think it's very important when you're looking at an underlying fund manager and how it is very important to understand how they use leverage. You know, a total return swap type facilities can be very different than a term facility. So it depends. But we do believe strongly that modest amounts of leverage do not add significant incremental risk relative to the yield enhancement. So, So we will use leverage facilities and and we're fine when underlying managers do as well. But it's something we talk to them about. We actually, with our underlying managers we invest with, none of them are the same. You know, the, the least risky could be up to say two times levered and the most risky can be at, you know, 50% levered. So it's it just depends on the risk we feel like we're taking and and how much risk it adds to the overall investment. Are there segments in private credit that you think where there are opportunities? And is there anything that, you th- that you're that you a little bit more cautious on right now? So I'll start by saying we are big believers in private equity sponsor-backed loans. So these, uh, we invest with managers who provide loans to companies that are owned by private equity firms. And the way to think about, you know, as we think about risk return, there's, I guess I'll, I'll put this in two buckets also. You can stretch for more risk in the underlying asset, you know, for example, do a, invest in mezzanine debt funds, which have a higher yield and a higher return profile maybe than a senior debt fund, and no, not use a lot of leverage on it. That's your yield. You're going to get the yield out of the mezzanine debt fund. We're bigger believers in taking more safety in the underlying asset, which we believe sponsor-backed loans are a little safer, certainly maybe than, than mezzanine debt, but then using that leverage we just talked about to enhance the yield. So it's another way to, to get to the same place a little bit. But our belief is it's easier to manage our leverage levels at our fund than to work out of loans, you know, at the underlying level. So we're, so we're in the camp of lower underlying asset risk, use a little leverage to enhance yield. And we really like the private equity backing. I, th- I think you saw it in COVID. COVID was actually a great test, by the way, for what's going on right now in terms of market dislocation and inflation and rising rates and expense increases and all that at these companies because firms had to drive more liquidity into their companies because we think back to COVID when it first happened, no one knew what was going to happen and how long this was going to take. And having private equity firms as owners of these businesses, they're one, they're professional business owners. So they're used to dealing with issues and managing through different cycles. Secondly, they have deep pockets. They've raised a lot of capital. 
and they can put money into these companies to support them in down markets. And that type of the ability to put that capital in those companies is huge for the senior lenders. So, and then I mentioned earlier that they have a natural exit to them because a private equity firm is going to say, and no private equity firm wants to go raise their next fund and show a big goose egg on one of their investments, you know? So, so they're going to support those companies and all of that accrues to the benefit of the lenders. So, so we're big fans of that market, especially where rates were <laughs> increasing a little bit. So it works against a little bit more, but we can still get a nice little arbitrage on our borrow rate and our lend rate to enhance that yield that we're getting from these, what we consider relatively safer assets. You know, I, on these podcasts, I always learn the most. You have taught me very well on this one, and I really appreciate you coming on. At the top of the show, you mentioned that you're from Huntington, West Virginia. I'm from Imperial, Missouri. And I don't know how many people from Huntington, West Virginia end up being the managing director and chair of the investment committee for a, a firm like 50 South Capital. So I guess I'd, I'd ask you this, as you look out today with the history and success that you've had, what would you tell your 21-year-old self? Wow, that's a, that's a, that's a deep one, Stuart. Let me, uh, hmm. um, yeah, as I think back, first of all, I think one is just follow your passion or what you love and, uh, and become an expert in it. You know, I think make yourself irreplaceable and valuable to, uh, you know, to the firm you work with or, or, you know, or to yourself, really. And then um, the other thing I find, you know, we, we have a lot of associates on our team. We do recruit quite a bit out of colleges. It's the associates that always go the next level. They always exceed the expectations you have set for them. They're always thinking of the next question that you're going to ask, you know, those kind of things are just so valuable to, to us as a firm. And so I, maybe that's two and they're probably worth not even one, but, but that's what I would say. I think it's great advice. I really do. It's been great to meet you and I've learned a lot and I, I really appreciate you being on, Bob. So thank you very much. Thanks, Stuart. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad you were on and thanks for listening. If you have ideas for podcasts, please email me at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast. Thank you.